Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode number 58. And today, Maggie and I are returning to our opening series uh, and doing our third, and I think for now, final, though we could keep doing this almost indefinitely. Well, not quite indefinitely. We could do it a few more times, uh, Jane Austen's uh, element of this. But we're going to go, do a couple other endings as well. Um, uh, so anyway, so we're, but we're finishing, uh, uh, we're, we're finishing with, um, uh, Jane Austen today Emma. with Emma. Yes. Uh, we're going to focusing on Emma and the subject of our analysis today. We're going to do a close reading of the openings of the book, the 1996 Gwyneth Paltrow film, the 2020 Emma film. Um, uh, th that's much more, the, the much more recent really visually gorgeous uh, production um, and Clueless um, as the uh, uh, as a really uh, Clueless of course is one of my classic examples that I think of you know that I always think of when I think of um, you know the what I've called modulation uh, adaptations to take a, a story and adapt it but adapt it in a different way or in a different context uh, Clueless's relationship to Emma is I think one of the it's just one of the most successful examples of that kind of adaptation that I can think of. Um, so couldn't forbear to talk about Clueless while discussing Emma adaptations. So we've added that as of so we've got four different works that we're going to be trying to uh, get through today. So we'll have to try to be a little bit efficient. And uh, um, but first, let's do a drawing. It's our uh, it's our fall fundraising campaign uh, and as I was saying last time we are celebrating uh, our donors and our uh, participants and just thanking everybody so we're going to do it now and we're supposed to do this once a week and then last week we had to cancel because I was having horrible electrical problems in my house so I, I was not able to um, be online as that was still actually in the middle of uh things going on the fritz and power surges and all kinds of bizarre things happening so um well what i'm going to do today is i'm going to do two separate drawings um i'm going to do um uh so i'm, I'm, I'm going to i'm just going to draw two names uh from of everybody who's filled in the form in the last two weeks all right so let's do and remember the prize for the drawing is your choice of a ticket to um uh to a um the regional mood of your choice a flight in our space, a free flight, one month flight in our space program, and a uh, an anytime audit. That is the uh, the re the recorded lecture series for any one of our MA courses. Those are the uh, you get one of those three things. And let's see, winner number one is winner number one is well, the anticipation. Oh, the anticipation. Praise Moyer! Praise oh, Moyer praise. wins! Excellent! Excellent! Uh, the praise is often here. That's fantastic. Yes! Yes! And the second winner is Bryce Breakley. Bryce Breakey. Bryce Breakey is the second winner. Um, there we go. I'm just marking them on my sheet so that I will remember. There we go. All right. Congratulations to Bryce and to Praise uh, for winning our first drawing. And then we're going to um, we're going to open the drawing back up, same form, um, for another week. So I'm gonna I'm gonna paste the link there again into the chat for everybody. 
So you can go ahead, even if you filled out the form before, fill it out again. It's time for another weekly drawing. Um, so we will do a drawing for everybody who fills out the, the form from here in, basically. Okay, all right, excellent. Okay, so let's jump into Emma because we have a lot let's to talk about here. Um, sh shall we start with the book again? Yes, okay. yes, let's always start with the text, which I have to say, I don't, I'm sure I've said this before, but it's also counter to like how I actually in, engage with adaptations now. So I think when we're studying something, when we're analyzing something, when we're discussing it in a comparison in an academic sense and doing kind of that deep reading, that's the way to do it, text yeah. to media. Because you've got to know where you start from and just kind of how they retell that story in different modes. But if you are a casual viewer, if it's not something I'm working on or studying, I 100% prefer to see the film first and then read the book. Because I usually end up enjoying the film and I'm not doing a comparison. I'm just enjoying it for what it is. Mm -hmm. And then when I read the book, I get so much more out of it. It's it's so rich and deep and extra info. And I love it. So there's my PSA for you don't always have to read the book before you see the film. Yeah. And I admit, I've always been one of those people who is like, I can't see that film because I haven't read the book yet. And, right. Um, and I was too until all of this. Yeah. Yeah. So no, it's been changed. I've decided, so for, I haven't, I haven't got a chance to do it yet, but I am, uh, I'm going to take the bold step and I'm going to do the thing. Um, and the, the, you know, what I'm going to, what is going to be my first one <laughs> my first, is going to be the Sandman adaptation. Because uh, oh. I've been meaning to read uh, uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman for a long time. And I haven't ever had the chance. Um, but now that, so I'm just going to watch it. I'm just going to watch it and I haven't even read it. So, yeah. I'm so jealous for your first experience. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking for an excuse to reread it. So I have seen the adaptation. I did read it ages ago. So maybe this is our our new foray that yeah, we'll be like and crossing I've <laughs> and I've never read wheel of time. So I right. feel like we could counter yeah. in that. Yeah. Respect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, anyhow, so, yeah, um, yeah, uh, Emma, we, sorry, we got to dig in. Don't Emma. we? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> but, but I agree certainly when thinking about multiple comparing and contrasting multiple adaptations like this, since the text is the, like the one central reference point to which they're all, it's it the certainly hub. makes, yeah, it's the hub. So it makes sense to kind of, um, um, kind of begin there. All right. So I'm so here. I'm not going to read the whole first chapter because the first chapter is actually quite long, uh, yeah. of Emma, unlike the Pride and Prejudice first chapter. Um, but I'll read the first few paragraphs. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, was a comfortable with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence, and had lived nearly twenty-one years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. She was the youngest of the two daughters of a most affectionate, indulgent father, and had, in consequence of her, of her sister's marriage, been mistress of his house from a very early period. Her mother had died too long ago for her to have more than an indistinct remembrance of her caresses, and her place had been supplied by an excellent woman as governess, who had fallen little short of a mother in affection. Sixteen years had Miss Taylor been in the Mr. Woodhouse's family, had been in Mr. Woodhouse's family, less as a governess than a friend, very fond of both daughters, but particularly of Emma. Between them, it was more the intimacy of sisters. Even before Miss Taylor had ceased to hold the nominal office of governess, the mildness of her temper had hardly allowed her to impose any restraint, and the shadow of 
and the shadow of authority being now long passed away. They had been living as friend and friend, very mutually attached, and Emma doing just what she liked, highly esteeming Miss Taylor's judgment, but directed chiefly by her own. The real evils, indeed, of Emma's situation were the power of having too much her own way, and a disposition to think a little too well of herself. These were the disadvantages which threatened to alloy, which threatened alloy to her many enjoyments. The danger, however, was at present so unperceived that they did not by any means rank as misfortunes with her. Sorrow came, a gentle sorrow, but not at all in the shape of any disagreeable consciousness. Miss Taylor married. It was Miss Taylor's loss which first brought grief. It was on the wedding day of this beloved friend that Emma first sat in mournful thought of any continuance. The wedding over, and the bride people gone, her father and herself were left to dine together, with no prospect of a third to cheer, their, to cheer a long evening. Her father composed himself to sleep after dinner as usual, and she had then only to sit and think of what she had lost. Okay, then it goes on, of course, to talk about uh, the... Uh, how the event had every promise of happiness for her friend, um, to talk about Mr. Weston and the marriage and, and how they're settled only a half mile away uh, and all that kind of thing. Is that good? Is there is there anything further you, you wanted to make sure I got to? No, uh, I think that's a really good establishing shot. Okay. To use filmic terms. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the first thing that we notice, especially in contrast to the other two texts that we read is that this has the heroine of the story 100% the focus of the narrative from the very beginning. I was just going to say that she is the first and also the title. I mean, she is the first yep. two words yep. and she's the title of the piece, which we have not had before. They're kind of an afterthought in our other texts. Yes. From, um, from chapter one of Pride and Prejudice, you might be able to make a shrewd guess of who is the actual heroine of that story, but not necessarily, right? right. Um, I mean, we're told a little something about each of the five daughters of the Bennets. Presumably, we can guess that one or more of the Bennet daughters is in fact going to be the focal point of the story. But I don't think it's perfectly obvious that Elizabeth is going to be the main focus uh, no. at all. And, and the only kind of nod we get is from her dad, right? Where he says, you know, yes. she might have a little bit more brains than the other. But exactly. she's not actually a focal point for a little while. Yes, we, we, we can tell from the conversation that Mr. Bennett favors Lizzie and that Mrs. Bennett favors Lydia. Um, and, that, and we're told that Jane the elder, is the eldest and very beautiful. Mm -hmm. So if anything, presumptively, I would think we're imagining it's probably going to be Jane, right? Right. Um, uh so it, it's not exact. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far as to call the first paragraph of Pride and Prejudice misdirection in this way, but it certainly leaves it open. Uh, Sense and Sensibility was even more open, right? We didn't even get to the girls until the very tail end of the chapter, and yeah. there we just got an equal description of each one, right? And it was three paragraphs. Yeah. Is that right. Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. a lot. Yeah. So. Um, uh, remember, we were all embroiled in the details of the inherit. You know the the genealogy and inheritance right in those uh, in the opening paragraphs of sense and sensibility um but um uh anyway so here this is a this is a significant change where this is this is all emma all the time right um and note th also that um 
one of the things that I found really interesting was kind of the transition from... So on the one hand, there's a certain objectivity that the narrator Mm -hmm. has in describing Emma, right? Especially when it goes on to critiquing Emma and telling us about things about her character of which she is totally unaware herself, Mm -hmm. right? The Mm -hmm. danger was at present so unperceived that they did not by any means rank as misfortunes with her, right? So... Um, the narrator is kind of confidentially telling us things about Emma that she herself does not know about herself, right? And so there's not only this, you know, the, the sense of the omniscience of the narrator, but we're all, we're like insiders. We're, 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 we're watching Emma and we're looking at, but we're cued with a kind of resistance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're told, I mean, that, this is another one of Jane Austen's is pretty cool for a sentence. It's hard to compete with Pride and Prejudice, but the first sentence is pretty good. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. Yeah. Um, really, really good. I love, I love the end of that sentence, with very little to distress or vex her. It just paints this picture of entitlement but because she's cheery and pleasant you're kind of inclined to think that she's quite lovely and we're happy to engage with that and give her a chance as opposed to she's been a piece of work her whole life and (laughs) you know she's used her privilege to be a real pain in the bum (laughs) right exactly and notice also like that it's very gentle right but the way in Mm -hmm. which we are instructed to view this as emma's own perspective Right. She doesn't say that she had lived nearly 21 years in the world and nothing bad had ever happened to her. It says very little to distress or vex her. That is, it's telling us about her reactions. Yes. Um, So we don't know exactly what has or has not happened to Emma. We just know that it did not vex her or cause her much distress. And it's interesting that, of course, we're going to go on in the second paragraph to talk about the death of her mother. Right. Right. So, so like, that went on, but it didn't distress her. It didn't distress her or vex because yeah. it was so long ago that she barely remembers her. Right. Yeah. Um, turns out to be the reason why. But it's but so we get this one immediate example of like, yeah, there's stuff. Right. But the but 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 what matters is what does Emma think about it? Right. What does Emma feel about it? Um, and of course, a, a big example is it doesn't come up here in this earlier passage. But one of the ways in which this um, this potential disjunction between what are Emma's actual circumstances and what vexes or distresses her, right? What is her perspective on her circumstances? Um, there's one thing that is not mentioned at all, and there's another thing which I think is Austin is hinting at in that first sentence. The one that doesn't appear at all is her, her relationship with her father, right? Um, if Dickens were writing this book, Mr. Woodhouse would be a burden. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like... And- Aging, moldering, decrepit. <laughs> yes, yes, he'd be even more over the top. Now, Mr. Woodhouse is really over the top. Like he, he's, he's. Uh, I, I find, um, I find Mr. Woodhouse hilarious, um, but I don't think I would find him hilarious to live with. Right. Um, well, and I can't wait till we can get to the adaptations and discuss the different oh depictions of him because. They're wonderful. I love every single one of them, but I don't want to live with any of them. I don't want <laughs> yes. to have to work with any of them. I don't want to manage any of them on a travel day. Like, no. Yes. yes. Um, 
you know, he is he's a um, so for those of you who haven't read the book, Mr. Woodhouse is a massive hypochondriac. Yes. Um, and he always, always. And he's not only um, he's not always worrying about his own health, um, but he's always worrying about everyone else's health, too. He's this combination of hypochondriac and also privileged well-wisher of others. Like, he has a good heart. He genuinely cares about other people. But as he's a huge hypochondriac himself, he's always taking proactive and officious, inter- making proactive and officious interventions into everybody else's personal management, right? Like uh, trying, uh, famously, of course, trying to prevent anyone from eating the wedding cake because wedding cake is too rich and not good for yeah. your digestion, he believes. Uh, and so he tries to stop everybody eating cake. Um, and uh, there's this constant um, sort of tug of war between him and Emma. Emma, who is trying to be a, an excellent hostess. Um, so she'll have people over for dinner and be trying to give them all of the best things. And Mr. Woodhouse will be trying to stop them eating it, uh, <laughs> right? Because he thinks it's it's like the food is too rich. For, he's, he's big on diet, Mr. Woodhouse is. Um, but Emma handles, she handles him marvelously like she is un, she is not distressed or vexed by mr woodhouse though she might be i mean it is it would not be hard to tell a version of this story or like to imagine a different a parallel story right in which emma is like just wishing every day for liberation from this yeah. like oppressive situation in which she is having to constantly manage her elderly father and like Edith says here, like he's kind of a burden. At the end of the book, he makes him come live with him instead of putting on his big boy pants and going to live at Mr. Knightley's. Yeah, he annoys the crap out of me. LOL. Yeah, like I think that's the character he's supposed to paint. But it's the fact that we all have patience for him, and Emma has patience for him, and this is the way that he is, and I love him how he is. So we need to accept him and not make his life any more concerning. It's a nice, sweet little soft spot because we probably all have people like that. Like I recognize your flaws. Right. But I'm just going to navigate around them because I love you, you know? Yeah, exactly. exactly. And Emma is unfailingly kind and patient with her father. Like, that never, ever, ever wavers. And so, again, so that that's one of the things I said. It's not, it's not anywhere there in that first sentence, but it's a great example of, mm-hmm. like, there are things in her life which many people would find distressing and or, or vexing, right? But she is has not found uh, much to distress or vex her. The thing that I think... Austin is hinting at is her age. She had lived nearly 21 years in the world. Um, and so remember what that's going to mean to people of this time. If you're almost she's ancient, she's ancient. ancient. Exactly. She is what one foot in the grave. She's almost all an old maid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's almost an old maid. This is the time when you're turning 21 in Austin's social world and you're unmarried yet. This is the, t- it's not too late. You're not too old, but this is the time when you start getting anxious. But right? it's also what gave me a complex as a late 20 year old woman, you know, <laughs> reading this being like, oh God. Yes, exactly. Um, so contextualize it in Jane Austen's time. Jane, that is- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Charlotte Lucas um, mm, is 20, 20, 28, 28, 26? 28. Yeah, 28. Yeah. yeah. She's 28. And her family is despaired that she's ever yeah. going to get. She does, of course, get married. Uh, um, not But well, in the Kira Knightley version, she 
blatantly announces that I'm eight and 20 years old or however she phrases yeah. it. What are my chances? Yes. I'm a burden to my parents. I have yep. to do this. So she marries what's his face? Mr. Ben- Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins. Yeah. She's very, um, she's very practical about mm. that. Right. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, so even the Jane and Elizabeth are also, I mean, uh, Jane or Elizabeth, I think is 21 also, but she's starting to feel the pressure. Right. And um, and there's 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 a kind of tacit acknowledgement that neither of the Bennett girls would have lasted as long as they have if they'd had Mm -hmm. any money. Right. Uh, It's because they're so poor that they haven't been able to marry yet. Again, not critical, not. So that's thrown out there. And that's another thing. Like if she's 21 and unmarried, some would be distressed or vexed by that. Right. But not Emma. And indeed, of course, we will find as we read on that Emma is, in fact, cheerfully resolved never to marry. She quite prefers it. She yeah. has a beautiful house. She has a good relationship. She's very and with her father. That's not inappropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and she's quite happy to maintain the life she has. Yeah. Which also at the time, when you think about what a luxury that is, that also kind of. Uh, exemplifies her her own entitlement you know mm-hmm. the fact that she could choose to be single yes and was quite happy with her life she had that ability not everyone had that they you know yeah. were forced into something her situation puts her it it gives her it gives her that option mm-hmm. right she is not there's no situation where she's going to end up poor and uh alone right and on her own. Um, well, actually, there potentially is. Are you thinking about inheritance? That's where I went. I am thinking about inheritance because yeah. her father, um, her father's land, it's not entailed or anything. There's no funky will thing going on, as is true in both Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. Um, but the heir to her father is the oldest. So she, they're, they're the two sisters, right? There's Emma and her older sister, Isabella. Yeah. Isabella's married and has several kids one of which is a boy, two of which are boys. I, th- I can't remember the kids. Thank but anyway, you. the little nightways. Um, and um, the, um, so the, lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, um, the little nightways. So the, the eldest. The path of inheritance. Yeah, the, the path of inheritance. One of the sons of her older sister is the heir officially to her yeah. father. So theoretically, um, when her father dies, Emma doesn't keep the land herself. Like she's not going to inherit the land. Her nephew would inherit the land, but her nephew's just still a little kid, right? And and again, then there's no sense that she's going to get booted out and like. I mean, I guess you'd have to street. hope that. Yeah, you'd have to hope that he would impart that, saying, "Yeah, you are my inheritor, but Emma's looked after." Right. Exactly. And they have their own establishment in London, the Knightley, the, you know, Mr. John Knightley and Isabella. Um, so, so again, even that, like there's a, should Mr. Woodhouse die, which he's old, so he could, um, but um, should Mr. Woodhouse die, it's conceivable that Emma's establishment could change in some way, but there's really no, there's. But it's not something we're overly worried about either. Yeah. You know, they're not described as manipulative, manipulative. Yes. Like they are in sense of sensibility and things like that. They're, it's it's not a non non issue. Yeah, and again, in, in, in it's, it seems important in that um, there are no, there is no sense in which Emma 
is under external stress. She's the only Jane Austen heroine who is not under... All of the rest of them are in some kind of tenuous situation. Elizabeth, mostly money, right? Um, you know, your typical Jane Austen heroine is from a, uh, from a good, you know, a family of, of, of some social standing, but who herself is in a tenuous money position, Right. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore kind of potentially socially marginalized um, that ten that's that's a very frequent um, obstacle in uh, uh, in e even in a book like Persuasion, there are still financial pressures uh, involved there. Um, Emma has very little to distress or vex her. Um, and so, again, this is another interesting thing that is then set up which seems to me a parallel to the way in which this focus is all about Emma all the time, right? The narrative is all about Emma all the time. The obstacles to happiness that are going to arise in the course of this book, right? They're going to be happy. There are obstacles to happiness, which have to be managed in order to achieve happiness at the end, right? All of the novels work that way with Emma. They're all internal. Mm -hmm. There's almost no external obstacle uh, to her happiness. Um, and so, and that's how so we're told about her, and we're told about these elements of her character and disposition, which are going to be her greatest obstacles, right? Um, and so that's again, that's kind of announced there from the outset. Um, yeah. So um, anyway, so yeah, that's it. It makes Emma a very, very different kind of story, and Emma as a heroine, a very, very different um, kind of heroine. Um, she is Much not more powerful from the start. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. She is the she is the center of her little world and she is the queen of her little world. Mm -hmm. um, there is no one. She has no rival, um, not just in her home, where, again, it's emphasized that since her mother died and her sister, there's an age gap between the two sisters and her sister was married uh, a long time ago. Um at least many years ago at this point. So like when she was a teenager, uh, Emma became the mistress of the house. And especially given that her father is a sort of hypochondriac invalid, um, she has had sole dominance uh, over yeah. the house and household affairs. Um, uh, so, so, and so that's her home, right? And then there's the society. Right. Um, uh, the Society of Highbury, which is the town that they live in, where her um, the Woodhouses are the are the wealthiest inhabitants. So like they are the they are the head of the social circle. Um, and so she is she is socially absolutely the the queen of the social circle there in Highbury. It's a restricted social circle. There aren't that many people. Right. It's a small town and she never leaves it. She does. She doesn't go to London like many. Well, people do or, or she could right she's wealthy enough to uh, spend the uh, you know spend the winters in London um, but she doesn't do that mm -hmm. and if if we can start comparing it to some of the adaptations you're right with that yeah it, like the Gwyneth Paltrow you know the earlier adaptation um, that first line where they talk about the a person's village being one's entire world or their town is their entire world they actually wrote that in text, you know, or said it out loud. I can't remember how it was presented, but 
but that's where we get to see that. So that was, you know, super important in the other text that we looked at. But it, it doesn't feel like an afterthought. It just feels secondary. Like yes. Emma is important. Setting is second. Yes. Whereas in every other one, it was setting and society and culture and legal things were all important. Yes. And the person was kind of the player within that. Yeah, I was... I was really interested. It took a it took a like about a minute for it to grow on me, but the opening credits of the of the the ninety six adaptation, the Gwyneth Paltrow edition, it starts with a view of space and the Milky Way. Yes, it's not, it's not like um, realistic. It's not like an actual space picture. It's, it's it's like a fifth graders diorama of space. Yeah, and yeah. of the Milky Way. And then you see a spinning globe, which is obviously a homemade project. Like it's not, mm -hmm. again, not like a realistic globe. And it's spinning and you see it in the distance and it's small and it gets bigger. And it goes on for a long time because it's the whole opening credits that this is happening. Um, and I'm like, okay, why are we getting a spinning globe uh, in the midst of the starry void at the beginning of Emma? I was, I was, it took me a while to see the connection and it's not until... It was it was a slow burn, but I thought the payoff was fun. Yeah. Um, as the globe gets closer and closer, it slows down a little. And at first, it's because it's spinning really fast at first, and it just it looks like you're seeing the continents spinning by. But then, like what I took for either North and South America or like Asia and Europe and Africa, you know, uh, going as you go slower, it's actually just the British Isles. It's just the UK. It's just yeah. the UK, right? Yeah. So like, there's a whole globe. With like UK filling an entire half of the U globe, yeah. nothing else on it. Um, that's what was spinning around. Um, so you get this warped globe spinning in the middle of of the emptiness of space, right? Um, and uh, and only um, only only the UK on it. And then when the globe passes by, we get what I suspected before because I know the book to be Emma's paintings of things in Highbury right so we get then we see Highbury uh, and then we get some things about how like the Bateses and you know Mr. Elton and uh, Mr. Knightley and uh, and then finally Emma herself and Randall's, which is the house that uh, poor Miss Taylor moves into when she becomes Mrs. Weston. Um, sorry, Mr. Woodhouse calls her poor Miss Taylor um, because she got married, right? And he assumes she must how be. How dare she? she yeah. Well, That's she must sad. be miserable to have moved out, <laughs> right? Um, so, but I, yeah. I really love that opening sequence, though, because it seems so big, right? We're looking at a massive globe spinning, spinning, spinning. Yes, we zoom in on the UK. But it's all homemade and it's yeah. just the UK. And then we have these hand painted images of the people that are players. So it's giving us that like big context of the galaxy and the world. But then it's narrowing it so quickly to this handmade thing that it's like, oh no, you're just looking at the slice. Mm -hmm. so and yet, let's just the, zero in. the juxtaposition, right? Like mm -hmm. these little things are the entire universe, right? Like the entire universe boils down to. Um, so it might as well be Highbury spinning in the void of space, right? Because yeah. there, there is there is nothing else in their world. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was yeah. a that was a really interesting. Again, I, I was I was not tracking with it 
for the beginning, right? I was like, this is a strange opening. And you know the text. I, I do wonder, like, you know, in terms of storytelling, when we're talking adaptation, I do wonder how that would read to somebody that never encountered it before. Because yeah. when you're an, I mean, you're doing analysis, that makes so much sense. That's so yeah. clever. Like, what a yeah. great way to show us the big, wide world, but also the teeny, tiny world that we're functioning yes. within. But I do wonder how effective that would be if you've never encountered Emma before. <laughs> yeah, I, I do too. I, I mean, I, I guess in, to some extent, well, but no, it's always the question with adaptations, right? I was just going to say, like, to some extent, you um, um, you would certainly think, right, that um, a lot of people watching a Jane Austen adaptation would have read Jane Austen. But, uh, but of course, that's always the issue with an adaptation, right, is that you can never assume that everyone watching it is going to have read the book. Well, and loads of people think that they're Jane Austen fans because they love Pride and Prejudice. They've never actually read a book. You know, right, they right. love the adaptations and they sure. might only love two adaptations. So, you know, yeah. you're playing with people that think they have a ton of knowledge, but don't necessarily, which is fine, you know, right. whatever context you're coming in. But you have to make sure you play to that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, so, I mean, I wonder. I mean, I had... Um... I mean, I have similar kinds of questions about how that space intro would play. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it does seem to kind of, uh, it clicks and makes sense, but it really makes best sense if you really know the book. There's a kind of dependence upon an understanding of the book there that I think mm -hmm. is, uh, is is fairly pronounced. That then, the, oh, sorry, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna compare, whereas the 2020 version we get actual text from the text, you know, yes. that that's as close, as close as you can get to start something off. But then I would say not much is close after that. It's not, it's not loose, but yep. it's definitely a liberal interpretation from then on. It is. Um, it is. But starting with a solid, this is actual text from Jane Austen. It's, it's like when you have a fantasy, but you have something in that fantasy world that exists in the real world. So it makes mm -hmm. you kind of question what's real and what isn't. It's like anchoring you in that yeah. real space. Yeah. So you believe everything else that's going on. So if we're starting, Emma, with the actual text, we're like, ah, oh, yes, this is a highfalutin, you know, Jane Austen adaptation. And then whatever comes after, we're, we're already in. We've already been hooked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course, they expurgated the first sentence. Um, the first, so the text that shows up on the screen is Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich. And then the second screen is had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. So they cut out the middle, right? Yeah. Um, but they start with that concept. And as you say, the, the, the clear rooting, right? They, I mean, they're waving all kinds of flags at the beginning. We are connected to the text, right? Um, and uh, that's, of course, not an uncommon thing for a, an adaptation that's going to make a lot of um, different choices from the original. Yeah. It's not uncommon for them to uh, um, start strong, start, start strong, right? To start yeah. with that anchor. Let's, there. let's not piss them off at the very beginning. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yep. OK, so um, I was going to. I was going to, so in thinking of the 96 again, mm -hmm. um, the first scene after the uh, world. world montage there at the beginning, <clears throat> it then goes straight to a scene at Miss Taylor's wedding reception, basically. Yeah. So we're, we're at the party. Um, the, the, the wedding has just happened. And it's 
Miss Taylor, or sorry, Mrs. Weston, uh, um, standing there with Mr. Weston, and Emma talking with Emma and Mr. Woodhouse, um, doing his poor Miss Taylor thing, in, and trying to stop people from eating cake. Um, so, but I would I would emphasize the number one. Um, the number one emphasis on in the in the Gwyneth Paltrow version, even from the beginning, the very opening words that Emma says is boasting about her matchmaking ability. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I couldn't help but notice that the the production was like by like matchmaker pictures or something like that. It was. I didn't even notice yeah, that. Yeah, it was a. It was in the mm-hmm. actual like production credits at the very beginning and I was like holy cow <laughs> I didn't notice that um, and of course uh, the you know the standard movie poster cover image for this is the is the the one with Gwyneth Paltrow and the bow right her mm-hmm. aiming aiming the bow doing the, Cupid. The, yeah the Cupid thing right so um, they really now matchmaking and Emma's delight in matchmaking is totally a thing in the book. Like it's not mm-hmm. like they're making this up, um, and it's something that is a significant emphasis at several different points in the story. Um, that always struck me of the uh, the the Gwyneth Paltrow version to be a, a particular choice. Like that was one of the one of the things. Even back when I was watching it for the first time in the '90s, before I'd been doing all the thinking about adaptation that we've done over the last couple of years. Even then, I was like, okay, that's a very they have chosen to lean really deeply into that element of the story. Like this is, this is, uh, um, they're, they're sort of declaring from the very start. And, and I think the opening lines declare that in this film, that like, this is a story about a young lady who does matchmaking. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, which is, it's not that it's not true to the story, but it's that's only a very partial view. Notice that in these opening paragraphs in the text, nothing whatever is said about that, right? We we get into right after I stopped, and it's going to talk about the match. It, we, she, he, she will go on in the first chapter to talk about how one of the consolations that um, Emma had for Miss Taylor's departure was the knowledge that she had made the match herself. Right. Mm-hmm. She had introduced Mr. Weston uh, to Miss Taylor and uh, and and contrived that, uh, you know, had, she had thought it would be a good thing that they would get married. Um, so, again, it's it's going to come up, but it's in these in this establishing shot, as you called it, the, the, the Emma establishing shot, which is like a portrait of Emma. Right. In this book, um, that is not one of the things that is even indirectly pointed to um, in these first what did I what did I read four five paragraphs five paragraphs yeah the first five paragraphs um, it's you know of all the things we're told about Emma that's not it so the the, the choice of the film to really foreground that and say this is going to be about this is going to be about matchmaking almost in a it almost gives the film a kind of um, like Shakespearean comedy feel mm-hmm. you know what I mean like it's it's a little more tongue in cheek than the others. Yeah. It's it's a little self aware. Yeah. 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 Um, and again, in the way in which, like, you know, 
the premise of a Shakespearean comedy. And I'm thinking of something like uh, Midsummer Night's Dream or uh, um, Much Ado About Nothing. Um, uh, uh, All's Well That Ends Well, though that one's weird, um, is, um, you know, like the whole kind of premise of the plot is like different people getting together and like mixing up and that like everything comes out right and the correct people being matched to the correct people in the end. Right. Like that, that's the, 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 the Gwyneth Paltrow film gives to Emma that kind of a, an atmosphere to some Mm -hmm. extent Um, Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, and that seems to me what's being sort of pronounced at the beginning. This is all about matchmaking um, and who's going to end up with whom. And it's a perfectly, uh, it, it's a perfectly, in so many ways, sort of acceptable filter through which to to kind of t- push the story, right? But it's definitely a filter. I mean, it's definitely mm-hmm. um, looking at, prompting us to see not only the the plot itself, but the character, especially mm. with Emma, um, through that one particular um, through that one particular lens, um, and the motivation. I mean when we're comparing our three adaptations, I know we haven't talked about Clueless yet, but in Clueless and the 2020, the real first impression we have is entitlement. I mean, it's just showing us how well off she is and how little she needs from the rest of the world. Whereas the 1996 one is entitlement. I mean, they're all praising Emma on the other's wedding day, you know? So it's, it's not about the bride. It's about Emma and her ability to paint. Right. Although, yeah, they're setting her up as the, the main focus of that. I hadn't even really thought of it from that angle, but you're, you're absolutely right. There's a kind of split focus in that Mm -hmm. opening scene in the Gwyneth Paltrow because it's Mrs. Weston's wedding day, right? It's her wedding. And they're all praising Emma for how beautiful her paintings are. Including starting with her praising Emma. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but it's also actually kind of similar when you were looking at the 2020, because we open on this total entitlement of her making her house maid and and servant, you know, come to the greenhouse with her. And no before her with a lamp on a stick. With a little lamp on a stick. (laughs) And she's not even saying, oh, that's a nice one. Could you cut that one, please? She's just barely touching right. a flower points, Thanks. And the, yes. not that one that one you know it's yes. it's real like mm-hmm. the the placidity of her expression and the elegance of her gestures mm-hmm. right and the, the stately silence in which she walks yes but it's all about her yeah like yes 100%. she's picking out a bouquet for her friend's wedding but it's very much about no not that one i am choosing this one you know yes. And then yes. that next scene is her walking down that hallway, holding the bouquet, wearing white. It's so incredibly bridal. That is a split focus because we're looking at Emma as the center of everything. Yes. And then she knocks on the door and it's actually someone else's wedding day. Did you notice the thing they did with the flowers and her complexion? too? I'm particularly sensitive to this because in the Middle Ages, people like it's like a, a one of the biggest stock cliches of the middle ages. Like they, they loved their beautiful lady descriptions. And so there are all these like standard cliches of how ladies are described. Um, and so it's, I'm, I'm often thinking in these medieval terms. And so in the, in the greenhouse with the flowers, the first thing she does is have like these perfectly white flowers next to her face. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing we see her holding a little baby rosebud and brushing it on her perfectly red lips, right? Mm. Um, and again, that's the, like the medieval beautiful lady description almost always has like some like- Lily like, white skin. Yeah, lily white skin and rose red lips. Uh, yeah. And she, with no words, 
she's she's so even the flowers that she's choosing and picking for her um for her friend's wedding bouquet like it's 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 made to be like aren't i beautiful aren't i yeah. perfect right it's you know she doesn't say that but it's it's really really cool the it's way that painting the, her yeah yeah the, the way that the and she, yeah and that's such a great example of visual language you know the yes. fact that we're able to take a white flower and a red flower and have that be a direct touch symbol of beauty yes that's that's a great visual representation it is i mean it's it's yes the way in which all everything that we are prompted everything that we're told about emma um is done absolutely without words Right. In the, I mean, okay, not absolutely. There's the one thing that she does say, as you say, like when she, when she not touches the flower yeah. and moves on and the maid behind her accidentally goes to clip the wrong flower, not the one that she touched, but the one next to it. And she stops her and corrects her is the only thing that's said in the entire thing. But um, you compare that to the 1996 one, the 1996 one is all words. It's just constant yes. chatter yes. and it's just filling the space. Whereas the 2020 reminds me of the pace of the opening of Pride and Prejudice, Keira Knightley, yes. where it's just letting you settle into that space. It doesn't need to fill it. It's letting you fill it. Yes. Whereas the 96 one, I feel is very much like, let us tell you everything that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, yes, very much focused on words. Even the camera doesn't really change much in that opening scene with the conversation like mr woodhouse leaves it at one point but the view remains on mm -hmm. you know emma and the westons there um and mr elton is fluttering about um by the way i think that that guy is my favorite mr elton um 96 or the 2020 one, the 96 oh one. see i think 2020 is mine yeah yeah okay <laughs> yeah. um but and i haven't come to my major objection to every adaptation of, oh, I can't wait. Yeah, of, of Emma that I've ever seen, including especially the 2021. The 2021, in my opinion, um, uh, messed this up more than any other. And it's the age of Mr. Knightley. Oh. You can't depict Mr. Knightley as a studly 25-year-old. <laughs> like, you can, but... You can. You make nonsense of the story. Um, yeah. I mean, this, there's a 16-year age gap between <laughs> Mr. Knightley and Emma. Um, there has to be... I mean, he is... 21, 37? Yeah, yeah. So he's okay. he's 37, which in Austin years is ancient. That makes yeah. him the oldest of all of uh, Jane Austen's uh, male heroes. Um, I used to keep track of that, by the way, when I was like... Growing older, I'm like, uh oh, I'm as old as Colonel Brandon now. Like, I, I need a, I need a, you know, my, my wife was teasing me about needing a flannel waistcoat. Uh, of course you did. Of course you get back. Yes. Hang on, exactly. I gotta cough for a second. Yes. So yes, when I passed Mr. Knightley, man, it was all over. But um, but it's just so much of the story rests. I found it very very difficult as a viewer, especially of the 2020 film, to um. It, in my opinion, it made nonsense of a great deal of the plot and much of the dialogue because the story hinges. Like, yes, Emma and Mr. Knightley are going to get together in the end, but the story hinges on that seeming almost inconceivable at the mm. beginning of the story. Um, it's I, he is this he's her real father figure. 
right? I mean, there's Mr. Woodhouse is not like a real father. I've never thought of him like that. Oh, God, you're right, because he's always been around. And he's always scolding her and correcting her. He's the one who who has actual quasi-paternal authority over her and exerts it over her. Um, And he's, you know, there's there's several years between her and her sister. And her sister married Mr. Knightley's significantly younger brother. brother. Right. So the age gap between them is it's 16 years. He talks in the end about like, I looked at you in your cradle when I was 16. Right. He's known her since she was a baby and he was 16. What's the difference between Marianne and Colonel Brandon? Because that always felt like the biggest separation. It's pretty big, but it's I, I, I don't remember exactly how old Marianne is. Okay, she's younger. We're in a similar boat. It's it's similar. Yeah, it's similar. So I mean, yeah, it should like and and to I mean, this is the thing. Like, the pivotal element in some ways of the of the of the the, the, the like romance plotline of Emma is that it literally never crosses her mind once in the entire story that Mister Knightley could be an appropriate object of romantic attention from her. Like he yeah. is, she does, but she doesn't know it. She doesn't recognize it, right? And there's all this dramatic irony where especially on a second and third reading, you can see that she is um, you know, she's feeling like jealous of Mr. Knightley. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if anybody, if, if anyone else is going to, is you know, if anyone is talking about anybody else marrying Mr. Knightley, she always like bristles and gets upset about it. Um, but she's never honest with herself as to why, right? But but I guess because it is it so because it, it comes down on her like a ton of bricks near the end of the story. Like holy cow, I am in love with Mister Knightley and I never knew it. I've been in love with Mister Knightley my whole life and I never knew it, right? Um, but when you depict when you choose an actor for Mister Knightley who is practically her own age, the obvious match for her in every possible way, it just means like she would have to be an idiot not to consider. Mr. Knightley like and that's that's the it removes every obstacle because um, yeah. all of the obstacles are in his and not to mention that it makes his attitude towards her when Mr. Knightley dresses her down right and he's like her same age it just seems like yeah. being a jerk right Mr. Knightley is kind of a jerk at times yeah. I mean yeah he's a smug parental figure he kind of puts himself in that authority position yeah yeah but, but that's it, so tough because Emma at no point needs not needs that because she does she needs some checking but like yeah she's in charge she's she's one of the house she runs the roost like yep. she's not seeking out somebody to put her in her place no but he's the but she does she does need it she does need to be resisted yeah. and he's the only one who will not give her her way all the time right um Sorry, i'm laughing at meow indeed yep <laughs> yes, that's it i would marry alan rickman in any timeline yeah i hear i hear, I hear yep. you i hear you um uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's it's uh, I find that this impulse to make Mr. Knightley, you know, young and studly really just makes hash of so much of the plot and so much of the intercharacter development. Um, I think that Clueless does it best. Clueless does it best. They still reduce the age gap. I mean, there's not yes. a massive age gap, but there is like a five year at least. But the, and it's the, a very different place of your life. That's gap. the thing. He's in college or just finished with college and mm-hmm. she's still in high school. So mm-hmm. it may well be there's only five or six years there and that's not like 16. But the, the gap between the inhibitions of 
a high schooler to be dating somebody who's out of college and somebody yeah. out of college to be dating uh, somebody in high school. Like that's that approaches uh, the situation, the, the circumstances. That, that it's the only adaptation I've ever seen where I feel like, OK, like I, the the Mr. Knightley Emma situation is sort of what it needs more. to be in order for this story to go on. And again, I'm not saying that you can't make that change. You can make that change. But but here I honestly I feel the reason I, I always feel troubled by that particular adaptation choice um, is that I think it, it's it really comes close to striking at the essence of this story. Like, does this story even make sense? The sense that it is supposed to make like if you're if you're going to make that change, if you're going to make Mr. Knightley and Emma contemporaries, you've got to change almost everything else. The world around in the storyline, yeah, you got to change everything. You can't be faithful to the book anymore and still have that make sense. Um, it just really doesn't work. It's, I mean, first of all, it's been so long since I've read Emma, so honestly, that never clocked for me. So I think that in itself is kind of interesting because that yeah. never bothered me in terms of a relationship in the adaptations that I've watched and loved, because you see that as a potential match and that's what it's supposed to be because this is a Jane Austen. So like in the back of all of our minds, that is an option. The fact that it might've been presented as never an option is a really significant change from text and also a really significant change from Austen, right? Like for her to plant someone it is. Now, in the yeah. that shouldn't be considered, but ends up being the one. Yeah. So here's that's quite the, a different character of her to paint. Yeah. Here's the, here's the, the, maximally generous reading of that choice, that adaptation choice, that I can think of anyway. And that is Emma, in my opinion, the thing that Austen does in this book, so there's a, a bunch of, I mean, I, I love all of the Jane Austen books for different reasons, right? But there are like some things that she does really interestingly, like there are different kind of, I guess I would say storytelling experiments that Jane Austen does in different stories, right? Um, Mansfield Park, for instance, jumps out to me because it's the only story in which I believe there is actual suspense about whom the heroine is going to end up with. Like there's 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 actual doubt um, that almost never happens in Jane. But she but she plays with actual suspense in uh, Mansfield Park. At least that's that's my reading of it. In Emma, what she's playing with is perspective, like the narrator's perspective. Emma's perspective and the reader's perspective and everybody else's. So there's Emma's perspective, there's the other character's perspective, and there's the reader's perspective. And as we saw, there are some ways in which she's already manipulating that in these opening paragraphs, right? Where she brings us in, we're now in the know, we know things that Emma doesn't, right? One of the very first prompts here that we get is Emma is unconscious of a lot of things. I'm going to tell you some of the things that Emma is oblivious to, right? Um, and um, she, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so she, um, and this is th like the big drama all the way through, like the primary source of drama in the entire story is Emma's progressive re-understandings of her whole situation and her progressive mm -hmm. realizations about what she was and was not understanding properly. And the way that Austin manipulates us as readers so that in some of the things we're with Emma and the things mm -hmm. that are a shock to Emma are a shock to us too. And in some ways we're like, come on, Emma, 
right? We're seeing through her like everyone else is seeing through her. So again, so this brings me back to my maximally charitable interpretation of the adaptation choice. By having, by depicting Mr. Knightley as a young studly dude, who yeah. is manifestly her match from the first minute of the film that we meet him, right? The adaptations are basically bringing us into not Emma's perspective, right? We're viewing things from, because it's, I think it's pretty clear. It's not just to the readers who might say, doesn't this seem like from the beginning? I think if you're reading Emma, you're like, well, maybe shouldn't she just marry Mr. Knightley? Wouldn't that actually yeah. be the best solution? Right? It never occurs to her, but it might occur to us a good deal earlier. I mean, from moment one, him showing up at the window, showing up at the door and being mm -hmm. comfortable sitting by the fire and reading a book, you're like, he's already it's, in the family. It's like a family circle. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's even, I think, pretty clear that there are certain people in, in Highbury, um, you know, in her society, who also kind of are like, that could be a thing, but okay, I guess not, you know, whatever. Um, so it, it, puts us, it puts us as audience in a different place. And I would say it, it has to distance us. It has the effect of distancing us from Emma and from Emma's perspective. Like we are looking, okay, uh, I want to be cautious in saying it this way, but we're looking down on Emma. Um, not in the sense that we're despising her, but um, if Emma is clueless about about Mr. Knightley, she is clueless in a way that we never are at any point. And so there's this distance where we are seeing more than she sees mm -hmm. throughout the entire and story. We're, and we're watching her realize how little she knows of the world or, you know, how much her impact can have, like with Mrs. Bates. Mrs. Bates? Yeah. Ms. Where she calls her. Mrs. Bates, yeah. Miss Bates, Bates, the younger, yeah. yeah, where she, where she's very rude to her, you know, yeah. and everybody's just appalled at her behavior, and all uh, of a sudden Emma sees that she is also appalled at her behavior. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Uh, Miss Miss Bates is a, a very gossipy, yes, in your face, lovely woman, but very in your face and gossipy, and you kind of don't want to get stuck into a conversation with her because you're going to be there for an hour, and it's going to be very dull for you because she'll just keep talking at <laughs> just you, just keep talking and talking at you, yes, no yeah. stopping it. But at one point, Emma calls her on it, and in front of many people in a very sweet like location, it's at a picnic. So being called out on your business in front of people in a nice location is mortifying, especially in Jane Austen's time. And yes. I feel like that's where Emma realizes, oh, God, I'm not really a good person sometimes. <laughs> right, right. Man, I got to say, the outing at Box Hill in Emma um, is the most painfully mortifying scene to read in all of Jane Austen. I can't, and, and I can barely too, push I myself had, through it. I had to fast forward through, I rewatched that bit in um, the 2020 version this morning and I had to fast forward through it because I just couldn't sit through it again. <sighs> and I was appalled at how many times I had to hit the fast forward button, which goes 10 <laughs> seconds every time you push it. So I had to push it like seven times. Like they stretched that out for Keeps... over a minute of cringy. Oh, it's so cringy. <laughs> it's so painful. So bad. And, and in the book it goes on and on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's awful. It's awful. Um, it makes you feel like a horrible person because yes. you're, you're sitting in the circle watching her discomfort. And oh. that's, of course, it's a fascinating testimony to how Austin has succeeded both yeah. in keeping you distant from Emma, but also like to see Emma acting badly and humiliating yeah. herself is so painful to watch. 
Um, and for the adaptations to be able to capture that emotion, to yeah. put us in that circle, yeah. watching her muck it up. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to come back and do, so after we finish our opening series, we're going to come, we're going to choose a scene and we're going to do another close reading of Oh God, you're going to make scenes. me do Box Hill, aren't you? I hope not. I'm just saying, I hope we don't have to end up having to do that one because that would be too painful. Uh, <laughs> it's going to require something other than water in my glass. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Yeah, we're going to have to, we're going to have so to have some cringy. adult beverages if we do that one. But um, yeah, Which not suggesting. Sounds like a fun giveaway activity. <laughs> right. Corey and Maggie have a drink and watch a film. That's true. Um, <laughs> we do have the grand prize of our drawings for other minds and hands as you choose the topic. So, oh man, I suppose if you're particularly sadistic, you could choose that. Um, yeah, it'd be hard. But um, no, but I think that would yeah. be an interesting one. But I just don't know if I could do it because it's so painful. But that's also the sign of a really strong scene. Yes. Yes. Um, getting back to um, Thorworth, this is sort of leading me back to, because I don't want to, we, we've, we've talked more about the 96 and less about the other two. Um, your encapsulation, I think, is exactly right. The primary message we get in the 2020 and in Clueless is privilege. Yes. Um, the, the, they, their openings lean heavily into how Emma Woodhouse unites some of the best blessings of existence. Um, the, we get this montage at the beginning of Clueless um, to the tune of Kids in America, mm-hmm. um, which features um, Cher is the, is the Emma character. Um, her wealth, I mean, it's a, it is a pastiche of rich and popular high school the, the rich and popular high school crowd in in Beverly Hills, in Beverly you know, Hills, so yeah. that's like another echelon of rich yeah. and popular because they're driving fantastic cars. They're at pool parties. They're in mansions. They're wearing crazy like hot couture yeah. fashion. Yes. Uh, it just reeks of privilege. And then she comments on it. So making it a very self-aware thing of you might be asking yourself, is this uh, is it Noxima? Noxima yeah. commercial or right. what? Yeah. Which also dates it to the very 90s. But right. You know, she's very aware of like, isn't this insane? Like, isn't our life crazy? Look. (laughs) And take that touch for a minute. There is a narrator figure in that film, but it's her voice, Mm -hmm. right? The Emma figure is herself the narrator of that story, which is really interesting, right? Because it means the, the, the Clueless film leans into bringing us along, like her perspective is our filter, right? Um, that's what we're... So it's not that we never are distant... It's not that we can never see her own limitations. Um, but the entire frame of the film is framed by her own perspective and her own expectations. We don't see a lot more than what she sees. Yes. Whereas with the other Emmas, we do see a lot more. Yes. And we are much more aware. But yeah, we are the same kind of innocent, oh, I did not know you felt that way about mm-hmm. me. That's so awkward, you know? Yes. Yeah. And it really seems... um, I'm trying to think of the... So, I'm trying to think of the effect of it. One of the things is that that a voiceover narration like that does, right? Is it enables... um, Some people don't like voiceover narrators in films. And I can understand why, in that it feels like cheating to some extent, right? 
that's kind of the cliche. I mean, right. when when you ask somebody about voiceover and they're like a first year film student, they're probably going to go, "Ugh, it's such a cop out," you right. know, exactly because that's what you're taught to say. But sometimes it can be an incredible device if used really well. Right, and 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 it's a if I'm understanding right, it's a cop out because basically you're saying your visual images are unable to speak for themselves. You've got to tell us how to respond to it. You're supposed than... to show, not tell. And here right. you are telling me instead of showing me. Right. You know, it kind of feels like broken rule number one, but sometimes voiceover can be a really elegant way to get information across. And in Clueless, the 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 choice of... So first of all, I mean, I like it in Clueless. And the reason I like it is it's not just giving us some kind of omniscient narrator voiceover. Right. Um, but again, just just to pause for a second, notice how that element, that uh, tendency uh, to consider voiceover a cop out absolutely shows one of the major gaps between text and film. Right. Mm -hmm. As far as media are concerned, that in in film, it's considered a cop out to use words. Period. Right? Yeah. It's not that you can't ever have dialogue, obviously, but like, but if you're using, if you're just, if you're using words to describe things, it's you know, seen as not the way you're supposed yeah, to do things. It's seen as a mm -hmm. kind of failure, right? Um, and that that's that's a that just speaks volumes to mm -hmm. the emphasis of that medium compared to compared to the text-based medium. Um, but of course, in Clueless we're getting Cher's perspective itself. So what the voiceover, the kind of, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of a distance and tension between what we're seeing and what we're getting, what we're hearing, right, in the words. And it, 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 it introduces us to this, like, different perspectives and different ways of looking at things. Um, uh, but, of course, another thing that it gives, and another way, as I recall... Um, I didn't get to rewatch the entire film just now, but actually we watched it. We made uh, we made our sons watch it uh, just a couple of years ago, so I saw it relatively recently. Um, one of the one of the effects of the share voiceover in the film is that it gives us her interiority. Yeah, right? you're closer to that narrator. Yeah, she is telling us what she's thinking and why she's doing things and how she's interpreting things, um, which is good in a sense like we don't I can see why the film didn't want to leave it to us to interpret what she was thinking and how she looked at things right it wanted to make that narrative um, and so we get the, the moment the parallel moment to her realizing oh my gosh like I'm in love with Mr. Knightley right uh, which is Josh which is the Paul Rudd character um, uh, when she has that realization she, she has it in voiceover like we're we're just watching her kind of stagger around, and she says it, yeah. And it's the most incredible line, which I I couldn't possibly remember, but I am totally over the moon, you know. Right. Whatever. It's a whole string of words leading up to it, but by the time we get that realization, we've been hearing her throughout. So like we hear a lot about like unreliable narrators and things like that. Yeah. She's never an unreliable narrator. She's a really sincere narrator. That doesn't mean what she's telling us is true because we're seeing right. it through her eyes. Right. So it could be skewed by what she thinks is true, but we believe what she thinks is true. So by the time she comes to that realization, we're all going, oh, my God. You mm -hmm. know, you're kind of there with her in that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really interesting. And, and so it, it's, it's, it's certainly a way in which uh, Clueless 
very much foregrounds this the whole like uh, Emma's perspective, um, our perspective, you know, our interpretation thing like that. That that is. I mean, I I think it's I think it's very uh, very true to the book. Like they're very much picking up on a major element uh, of of the story in balancing these kinds of interpretive. Um, interpretive perspectives and uh, ways of looking at things. Um, I had to look it up. Oh my God. I love Josh. I'm majorly, totally, but crazy in love with Josh. <laughs> yes. That's the line. Um, yes. Um, and again, notice the, the revelation is the revelation about her own feelings. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what happens with Emma too. Um, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, and that, I loved the 2021 for that. I know there's the age difference, but I thought the subtlety of them coming to that realization was really well played. Mm-hmm. And that's down to actor performance. So things can be in a script with a certain intention hoped for, but if that's poorly casted or not well directed, you know, it, it can just get skewed and not come across as well. But yeah. I think because everything was such a high level in that adaptation, and the cast was just incredible that the reveal of that was really lovely. It felt really subtle in all these different moments of like, oh God, I really need to tell you this, that scene by the tree where they're dancing around each other. And it's just all these like jump cuts of cutting off each other's paths. It's both of them awkwardly coming to the same place, but they literally have to be misdirected multiple times because they're figuring it out. Yeah. 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 That's that's a really, that's a really fun visual play there misdirect them as much as you can because we're all guessing along with them and it was really well done um am i am i remembering correctly is it the 2020 adaptation that has emma suddenly having a nosebleed yes yes at that moment yeah yes yeah. i thought she was gonna pass out and yeah yeah, yeah. that felt a bit odd but it was, it was it was a bit odd and jarring but it's also like so appropriate for where they both were i mean it's basically the like oh moment yeah. Like, what else can you do in Jane Austen's time that is utterly uncomfortable? Have a nosebleed. <laughs> have a nosebleed, right. Without a handkerchief around? Like, how did neither of them have a handkerchief on them? <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was, that was at the very top of my most peculiar adaptation choices <laughs> made in that film the sudden spontaneous nosebleed that emma experienced. it must have just been like what can we do here to really give some shock value yeah yeah <laughs> yeah is to have her face start bleeding and look like she's gonna pass out i mean it certainly does kind of convey the sort of like physical shock that she experiences, you know, in that and moment. the out of control. I mean, yeah. her character also changes in that moment, and mm-hmm. she crumbles, and she says, "No, but my friend loves you." You right. know, so she has this kind of moment of like, "Nope, this is all wrong." Nope. Yep. Might yeah. as well have her next bleed or something similar. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I think back to the opening scene, the flower scene, right, and um, the one of the primary things that I felt being conveyed was control, right? She is someone who is in complete control of her environment. Um, even the, my favorite thing about the, the lamp on a stick, you know, with the servant who came on, whose only job was to hold the lamp on the stick because it was still 
dawn. It was not fully light out yet. Um, and so in order to have enough light to see the flowers that she was going to be picking, she had to have the dude with the light, with the lantern on a stick. Um, and th that it creates this impression of like the, in she carries her own like atmosphere around mm -hmm. with her. Right. And she is absolutely serene at the heart of it. Like just, but she doesn't carry it. People make it around her. Yes. Um, I thought it was fascinating how visible the servants are in the 2020 adaptation. We're always seeing servants on screen, often scurrying around, right? And we're kind of um, we're kind of asked. The dialogue asks us to ignore them most of the time, right? Like we don't. Um, they're not included in the dialogue. They don't. I mean, the, the, so we'll have a we'll have a scene in which we're getting a conversation between two or three people in the book. And in the book, there's no sense there's anybody else even in the room when they're having this conversation. And yet in the film, many times, we are visually acknowledging the presence of often a flurry of, of, uh, of, of servants um, scampering about and doing things in the room and making everything right the way that it should be. And the thing I really noticed with the servants on this viewing was how often they were waiting for a reason to do something. You know, the second they were like, oh, we need to call Dr. Perry, go! You know, like yes. they had a task or we have to move that screen or close that window or whatever it is. Like they were just waiting for that task. And, and that just, to me, showed like, oh, they're very much setting the environment in which these people exist. Yes, yes. And of course, this is... Mr. Woodhouse is very peculiar about his environment, right? Very particular, I should say, about his environment. And Mr. Woodhouse, when I first saw that Bill Nye, because he's described as decrepit, falling apart, ancient, doesn't move, you know, out of shape dude. And then he leaps down the stairs. <laughs> he literally jumps onto the screen when we <laughs> first meet him. It's oh, so startling. Bill? Yes. Oh, he's so good, though. He plays it so well. That, that Emma would have a hard time physically keeping up with him. She's trying to pin a, a flower on his chest flower. and he keeps moving around. She's chasing Miss That if Emma chasing Mr. Woodhouse around a room, I mean, he never even stands barely ever stands he's, except for he's his, still uh, utterly affected. You know, he's still yeah. very hypochondriac. So that part reads really well, but the energy that Bill Nye brings that role is great. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a really fun performance. Um, but yeah, let's talk about, let's talk about Mr. Wood. This is, it's, going a little bit away from our openings specifically, but Mr. Woodhouse is involved in most of the openings, at least. Mm -hmm. um, so tangentially related, you had mentioned about the different uh, depictions of that. And it's interesting because I think almost none of them are actually, actually represent what Austin describes in the book. Mm -hmm. The hypochondriac tendencies often They're are there. preserved. The, the right. worry ward element is there. Yeah. Um, but as far as depicting him as, as physically weak as yeah. he is, that almost never happens. Um, the, um, the, the approach to him in Clueless is particularly interesting. He's a, a savage litigator, um, mm -hmm. who's always working all the time. And so his relationship with Cher, the Emma character, is preserved in many ways she's look she's always looking out for him she's always trying mm -hmm. to take care of him um but um 
uh, and that he re- is a person who requ- they convey really well that he's somebody who requires management, right? Like it's very Don't clear that like doctor says, yeah, most people would not handle being this person. Like I get, the, the thing that I love about it is that you get the impression that like, man, being this guy's daughter would be a nightmare. Yeah. Right. Um, but and that she feels the need to engage with that because she was even like Dr. Smith or whatever his name was says so like she's involved with the doctor to manage her yeah. father. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, exactly. And um, but but again, you, you get the justice in the text. You get the sense that Mr. Woodhouse could clearly be a kind of a nightmare to live with. I mean, he could make your life an absolute misery um, depending on your attitude. Right. But. To Emma's not bothered, right? Emma's attitude is, and and I think in Clueless, I thought they preserved that really, really well. He's this cantankerous, short-tempered, um, uh, uh, you know, like mean-spirited in many ways, you know, kind of guy. But she takes everything in stride and 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 you know contextualizes everything in the most positive and benevolent way. Takes everything and and, and is completely positive towards him and 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 the situation. And he is. I mean, you see the stereotypical depiction of a, a litigator in Beverly Hills. You're kind of automatically going to go. you're scum of the earth right like that's not the best role to fill and he's on his fifth wife or whatever it is and 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 whatnot but there's also like this lovely little moment of that line where he says josh is coming around Ugh, you're barely married to his mom (laughs) you divorce wives share not Uh, children not children like you get this really nice moment from him where it's like you divorce wives you don't divorce children so like yeah, he might be an absolute tool and he might be power hungry and a bit, you know, but there's a core that you care about. And that's what Cher focuses on. Yes. Cher only cares about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought that was it was I mean, I remember seeing Clueless for the first time and being really taken aback because I, I'm a big Mr. Woodhouse fan. Like, I think he's hilarious. As long as I don't have to live with him, I think he's hilarious. Yeah. And um, uh, and so I was I was taken aback by uh, by the father figure because um, he's so different from Mr. Woodhouse. But I, I warmed up to what they were doing with him. You could mm-hmm. see how they're really taking, um, not just doing a similar thing in different circumstances. Like, it's not just like a, a 20th century hypochondriac, right? It's, uh, um, they're, 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 they're really sort of selecting out the elements. Like, what makes Mr. Woodhouse's character and his relationship with Emma what, mm-hmm. what are the really important yeah. elements of those things in the story? And let's try to reestablish those in this completely different context. I, I thought that was just, it's a brilliant, brilliant move. In some ways, you know. Um, and I think that's one of the, sorry. Go, go, that's no, no, the, the, and I think that's one of the core focal things of adaptation. Like you're, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head of this is the thing that we need to focus on with Mr. Woodhouse. Emma loves him and everybody else views him as a problem. Mm-hmm. But Emma loves him, so I guess we have to love him too. Yes. It's not like they want to dislike him, but everybody recognizes that he's a, a bit of a problem. You yep. know, he's a bit of an inconvenience. Yeah. And that's what we get to see in the the clueless version. Yeah. That's the part they get to focus in on that nobody wants to hang out with him, but Cher loves him, so I guess he's a good person. Yeah. Yeah. I um I incre what was I increasingly think this kind of adaptation, like the clueless sort of, adaptation, this kind of modulation adaptation, 
in some ways, like this is where this is where it gets real, you know, as far as doing adaptation of the text. Mm-hmm. Um, when you really have to go through and do it requires more skillful analysis, right? What are the essential elements of this story that we want to preserve? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, how can we tell a story which is still closely linked to this original story, even when we are making some like, you know, by necessity, radical changes to the circumstances and to the environment? What are the things that we have to preserve um, and how can we go about approaching that? And the, again, Mr. Woodhouse is such a fascinating example of we're going to take those things. We're going to come at them, not just put them in a different setting. But we're going to come at them from an entirely different perspective, right? We're going to make him, yes, he's going to be a hard-to-deal-with father who has a good heart and whose relationship with his daughter is important in these ways, and he is an important factor in her life, um, but sort of a, as like a, an, not an obstacle, but a, a limitation to be overcome, right? Like, he's like a burden on her, mm-hmm. that like, but but he's like a variable in her, like, he the management of her father is something like anything that she does or plans to do has to be, um, you know, it, it has to be made to work with, uh, you know, uh, handling Mr. Woodhouse. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same is kind of true of, uh, of, yeah, they, 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 they manage that kind of thing. Right. But, but again, when you're just doing a retelling, it's almost like cheating, right? Mm-hmm. You can do, many of the just do sort of many of the same things right but when you're forced to come at it completely differently how how do you do that i think that's a it just it it really kind of puts so much more pressure on that and is is a a really fascinating dynamic and exercise too you know like how are you going to tell this you have all the creative power that you want but if you go too far, people are going to be angry and it's not going to be true to the spirit of the original, whatever that means. You know, we've, mm-hmm. we've talked about the trouble of the language. Yes. So walking that line and making sure that you do have some creative interpretation of the text that is there, but don't wander too far that it still honors the piece that it came from and doesn't yes. totally disregard it. Yes. It's a tricky, tricky walk to walk. And to identify those elements, which are, as we've said, like, you know, vital. Yeah, those like where like if you lose these this story element, it's just a different What's story. Point? Yeah, yeah, it's it's totally it's totally different. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's why again that that's why for me I do struggle with the, with Mister Knightley because to me that it's pretty close. It's pretty close to me. I, I for me I I think that that the playing with the different perspectives and the um and the ultimate you know, like that the parameters established by that age gap. And again, as I said, I think Clueless does it best of all of them as far as preserving that element of it, uh, mm-hmm. does it best. And you can look at the others from a, from a different perspective. They can still work in some ways, but um, it's one of the things that for me kind of undermines, um, mm-hmm. kind of undermines that. Um, and I guess I can kind of see that from a modern perspective that like child bride is not something we want to depict as a positive outcome, sure. you know, like, sure. Not, not the best route, but there is an acknowledgement that that really does change the original text. Now, it didn't clock as a poor choice for me because I was happy for them to have that ending and didn't remember the age gap. 
but you can see how that would be a real departure. So how are you going to manage that if you're well, going exactly. to change that? If you're going to change, like, <clears throat> surely you should replace it with something else then. Like, if the age gap is uncomfortable, if you're not comfortable with the 21-year-old and 37-year-old, well, that's less of a problem than the 16-year-old and baby. That's the problem, mm. right? That's the problem. Um, it's like, I have been this, you know... Twilight. I imprinted on an infant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's going there is what makes it uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Um, it's all of the conversations that Emma has with Mr. Knightley where she talks about how he has been scolding her since she was five, right? Yeah. Um, her memories of being five when he was in his 20s and, you know, him, you know, chiding and disciplining her and stuff. I, 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 I totally get it. Like, if you don't want, as a modern filmmaker, to go there... I can respect that choice, but I'd love to see you replace that with a different kind of obstacle mm -hmm. then, right? Um, uh, but, um, yeah, anyway, like that's, yeah. that's, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, it's, it, it is one of the, it's, it's the biggest problem I always have. It's my, um, uh, my greatest uh, reservation about Emma, both of these two, Emma, adaptations and just um, adaptations in general is that um is, is that issue and i think the example of clueless is a great way to say how you can do that yeah. it's they lowered the age gap but we're at different life points so i think you that is probably why it works the marianne and colonel brandon like right. yes she's young she's 16 or 18 or something and he's obviously i'm guessing he's, early 30s or something no, he's 30, 36 i think okay mid-30s yeah but he's lived a life, you know, yeah. he has lived a couple of lives compared to Marianne because she's been so sheltered as well. And he's Colonel, you know, so he's definitely seen some stuff. So like that divide mm -hmm. makes more sense that she wouldn't consider him. So yeah. their resolution at the end is a bigger journey. Yes. So, yeah, I think there are different ways that you could do that, even in Austin times. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, or I mean, or just go in a completely different direction. You go in a completely different direction. Right. You know, I mean. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there are lots of things you could do. That would be a fun <laughs> challenge to think about. I was going to say, I'm like, that's another episode. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, so you know what would be fun? It would be fun to do a series of episodes in which we, like, brainstormed a Clueless-esque modulation adaptation of, like, a work that hasn't had that treatment yet. That'd be so fun. Would be really interesting again to, to mm -hmm. think about. Okay, so like, what are the choices that we'd have to make? What are the critical decisions, the critical framework, right, that we would mm -hmm. have to put into place in order to um, have the story that we're telling in the adaptation be related in constructive ways to the original. And and related. Do you want it to be close? In which case, are you going to go chapter by chapter and see what right. the motivations for each chapter are and right. which each character arc you know what happens that chapter or yeah. are we just gonna go for an overview you know 10 things i hate about you is taming of the shrew versus clueless as emma like right. that's a right. fun comparison it is it is yeah i mean of course shakespeare is the one who's had most more of these kinds of adaptation than mm. any other author i can think of understandably um uh o is another one Oof. that i really like um the othello adaptation um uh yeah anyway um that i think is uh that would be that would be 
that would be fun. That would be fun. fun Yeah. Um, And we don't know what we're doing next week. So we'll decide that probably in a few minutes and we'll let you guys know if there's homework. Yes. Well, because we're we're working up towards did you want to begin our Christmas sequence? We were going to do. I I do. Yeah. Because I'm I'm thinking if we want to take a look, we might as well talk about this now. Um, if we want to take a look at scenes, we could start with A Christmas Carol because we already talked about it last year. Mm-hmm. So we could do a specific scene from Christmas Carol. That's true. That's true. We could use the same films that we used last time and looked at a specific... At least for one episode. That doesn't have to be for five. That could be a starting point for next week and then we depart a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Well, it will be post Thanksgiving officially as of next week. So uh, um, we will be um, uh, for our first uh, our first broadcast in the Advent season. We shift and do some Christmas movie stuff. Um, What scene would you want? We could do um, one of the most obvious would be like the confrontation between Marley's ghost and Scrooge. Yeah. I'm not as excited about that because it feels pretty straightforward and it's information driven. Mm. I'm trying to think of one where there's like more of a spiritual shift, like Christmas present at the party. You know, we see some examples and he grows. I don't know. Or like the the uh, Ghost of Christmas Future, maybe, because that's mm-hmm. always a brief like one scene thing. And quite different from the text in pretty much every adaptation. Yeah. And Druid's Fire, yeah, Scrooge is great. <laughs> we could just actually look at the ghosts. The, the different depiction depictions of the, of the three ghosts. Or just pick one of the ghosts. Or just pick one of the ghosts. Because we already had a bunch. I mean, we had... Because we did two episodes. We did like six versions of uh, yeah, we did. Christmas Carol. We did the modern ones and the old ones. Um, I'd also completely forgotten about Spirited until I was looking through Apple TV the other day, and I'm like, oh my god, I have to rewatch that. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, that one was really yeah. interesting. Maybe we pick, I mean, but that could even be three episodes. Each episode is a different ghost. If we're going to do and all I, six of the films that we did. I know, that's a lot, Corey. That's a lot. It's a lot. And I still want to, I, but and I still want to do what you suggested before, which was the Grinch. I think the Grinch is a, you know, doing the Grinch would be a, a fantastic discussion, especially since we have there the element that we don't have in any other adaptation that we've looked at, and that is visual cues from the Dr. Seuss from illustrations as well. Okay, so let's start with Grinch next week okay. because that's an easy homework assignment, and then we can mull over Christmas Carol and what happens next. Okay. But if we're saying read the Dr. Seuss Grinch book yeah. and watch the 44-minute famous cartoon Classic and cartoon. the most recent Benedict Cumberbatch animation and the Jim Carrey? Yeah, and the Jim Carrey. Okay. Jim Carrey's yeah. my least favorite, but that'll be interesting to talk about. And do are we, we just want... doing openings again or are we doing a general well, comparison? I was thinking about that. Let's. Yeah. If we're going to do that many, we should probably do something more specific primarily the open I mean, we always end up going off to the whole piece anyway but yeah. if we try to zero openings. in on like a scene as a case study with some general so stuff. like uh and by the opening i would mean primarily the initial setting and the, like up through when the grinch decides to set out for whoville basically sounds good yeah yeah 
So the the opening focus on the Grinch's character and 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 background of the story there. That sounds good. Oh yay! That sounds like a lot of fun. Good. Awesome. Yay! So we'll and so we'll, yeah. I will change my position next week to be that in front of that. <laughs> there you go. You're ready. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. Excellent. Christmas comes early in this house. Very good. Very good. Mm. Um. <laughs> nice Druid's fire. Yeah. I like a good pun. Ghost of Christmas Future scared the dickens out of me. Yep. Yep. Um. Cool. Cool. Excellent. Okay. So we'll see you next week at the Grinch. The Grinch next week. Thanks everybody. Fun. See you guys next week. Bye now. Bye.